just a reminder that the seminar, uh, there'll be a seminar next Saturday as well, um, will be our third seminar. And then the following Saturday will be our fourth seminar for um, this series on the Holy Spirit. I know the last seminar that we did was fantastic. Um, so we appreciated that, Michael, and we're looking forward to the time that we um, can have today. I don't know if uh, Dr. Haken remembers this, but I was actually in one of his classes a few years back. He's had a lot of students over the years, but I always, I appreciated him as a, as a professor. Um, I took an early church fathers class with him at Heritage, which was, which was really good. Um, so if you ever want to, you know, audit a class at Heritage, I'd totally recommend that too. Um, but uh, we're really fortunate to have him with us uh, for this series. So uh, nice to see you all this morning. And I'm just going to say a prayer before uh, we get into the seminar this morning. So let's pray. Um, Father God, we thank you for this uh, time that we can be together this morning, that we can um, learn from uh, from Dr. Haken. Thank you for um, the Holy Spirit and uh, that you have given us um, the Holy Spirit within us uh, to help reveal uh, the message of Christ in our lives. Um, and I pray that you would uh, give uh, uh, Michael the words this morning for us, and I pray that you just bless this time now. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Well, it's a great uh, delight and pleasure to be with you and privilege uh, again. Um, so uh, last time, which was two weeks ago, we looked at the gift of the Spirit in relation to the day of Pentecost and really spent our time kind of unpacking uh, Acts 2 and uh, the promise of the Holy Spirit uh, in Christ's ministry, in some ways being the kind of sum of, of his work, uh, the Spirit um, applying the work of Christ, uh, the Spirit opening uh, the believer's eyes uh, to know who Christ is. Um, spirit is the Spirit of mission. So what I'd like to do today is think about the work of the Holy Spirit in the letters of the Apostle Paul. And uh, there is in many ways, uh, the Apostle Paul deserves the title um, the theologian of the Spirit, for probably more than any other author in the New Testament, except for maybe the uh, gospel writer John, um, he gives us uh, a doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And uh, what I'd like to do then is look at a number of characteristic emphases uh, in uh, Paul's uh, theology of the Holy Spirit, which technically we call pneumatology. So P-N-E-U-M-A-T-O-L-O-G-Y, pneumatology. Um, and that's uh, made up of two words that ultimately go back to the Greek. Uh, logos, meaning word, teaching, uh, can even mean doctrine. And then pneuma, um, which means spirit, wind or breath. And it's the word that is used in Greek for the Holy Spirit. Um, we have evidence of that in English with a thing like uh, a pneumatic drill, um, which is um, uh, the word pneumatic there. It goes back also to the same Greek word pneuma, which means wind or spirit or what have you. And in the New Testament, this is the word that is used of the Holy Spirit. So we have the technical word then, pneumatology, which describes... Uh, which is the, it has the meaning of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit or the teaching on the Holy Spirit. 
And so I want to, well, what I'd like to do then is explore this along four lines. Uh, the first of all is that for Paul, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. And we looked at this last week, uh, two weeks ago as well, that the Holy Spirit is a Christ-centered spirit. And the Holy Spirit has a, um, a floodlight ministry. Uh, that's the, that image, actually, I got initially from J.I. Packer, but I, I used an experience of my own um, one occasion in Quebec uh, when I used to teach at Sembec, the French Baptist Seminary, and uh, looking at floodlights and how they floodlight is designed to illuminate an object, not itself. And um, for Paul, Paul has that same uh, basic idea that the spirit is the spirit of Christ. Um, and we'll explore that. The second idea is that the Holy Spirit, uh, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, is the fundamental mark of belonging to Christ. Or the Holy Spirit is the fundamental mark of being a Christian. And that the there is a difference uh, between uh, those who are believers and those who are not believers. And that difference is the one have the spirit and the other do not. And so during, for example, during the second great awakening, the first great awakening rather, or the evangelical revivals of the 18th century, uh, George Whitfield would ask the question, the great uh, British evangelist, uh, do you feel the spirit within? And uh, he was building off of this very, very fundamental idea that if you do not, you have, if, 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 you're like the Ephesians disciples in Acts 19. Well, we've never even heard if there's a Holy Spirit. It would be evident that you're not a Christian. Uh, there has to be a recognition that indwelling the believer is uh, the person of the Holy Spirit. The, the, the Holy Spirit is the fundamental mark of belonging to Christ. That's the second idea that we want to explore this morning in the Apostle Paul's writings. And then thirdly, the Holy Spirit is a, and I'm going to use another technical word, and then I'll explain it. The Holy Spirit is an eschatological spirit. And uh, I can use the chat feature here. Um, if you have uh, all of you at the bottom of the, bottom of the uh, screen there, there is a thing that says chat. If you click that, you'll be able to see, that's where you can ask questions, and etc. And um, let me type out the word pneumatology there as well. So you've got that. There's pneumatology. And the word that I just used was eschatological. And uh, this comes from the Greek word again, um, um, eschatos. Uh, we have a word eschatology, uh, which means last things, uh, end times. And um, in other words, when I say that the Holy Spirit is an eschatological spirit, um, what I'm saying is that the Holy Spirit is a spirit who introduces us to the end times or introduces us to the future. And I'll explain this in more detail. This is very, very important for Paul. And then third, fourthly, uh, the, the life in the spirit is the Christian life. Without the Holy Spirit, we can't live the Christian life. 
And the Christian life is a life in the spirit. Or if you want to use contemporary jargon, uh, a life in the spirit is Christian spirituality. That's a big word today. Um, uh, you, you'll hear people say, you know, uh, I, I, I like spirituality. I, I'm a spiritual person, but I really don't like religion. Well, from the point of view of the New Testament, that's just all nonsense. Um, first of all, Christianity is a religion. Uh, it's got all of the details of a religion. Um, obviously, it's, it's more than a religion. It's a relationship. But, um, you, you know, I've, I, there is a, uh, a particular preacher in southern Ontario. I won't be, name anything beyond that. Uh, where he says that uh, he argues that the main reason for Jesus' coming to the world and his work is to deliver us from religion. And it's a curious remark. <laughs> I think it's a wrong remark, because uh, if I walked into any church, no matter how free-flowing or whatever, uh, what I see is religion. I see uh, uh, the, the reading of the Bible, uh, usually speaking about the Bible, uh, singing uh, hymns, and all of these are part of what we would describe as uh, as religion. And uh, the, the the term spirituality um, ultimately goes back to the word spirit. And uh, to be a spiritual person is to be a Christian. To be a spiritual person um, is to be indwelt by the spirit. Life in the spirit is Christian spirituality and uh, spirituality and religion, Christ, the Christian religion go together. So that's the fourth point. The Christian life is a life in the spirit. There is a fifth point, but I'm not going to get into that today. That'll be next week. And that is the Holy Spirit is a charismatic spirit. And um, you can think about that during the week. Uh, and we'll look at that next Saturday. That the Holy Spirit is the spirit who gives the charismata or gifts. That's the word gifts. So those are really five major points that if you're if you take everything that really what I'm doing here is I'm taking everything that Paul says about the Holy Spirit. And he says a lot and trying to summarize it under these four headings. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of Christ. The spirit is the fundamental mark of being a Christian. The Holy Spirit is an eschatological spirit, and the Christian life is above all a life in the spirit. So the first one then, and uh, I can put these in the, the chat feature then. The first one is, uh, let me get it here. The Holy Spirit is... Spirit of Christ. Sorry, that should be is. Um, why don't I copy off my notes? That'll be easier. Yeah, and just paste it in. There we go. So this is the first point. Now, where would I go to to find uh, verses that affirm this? Well, I'm going to look at three verses. And uh, so I hope you have a Bible handy uh, because we're going to be looking at a number of Bible passages. 
And those are the three verses we want to look at. Um, Romans 8, 9, uh, Galatians 4, 6, and Philippians 19. So let me uh, read these verses. And of course, if we were, if we had uh, the time to explore each of these points that I'm going to be looking at, uh, say an hour for each, um, we could look at the surrounding context in great detail. But I'm just going to read the verse uh, to highlight uh, the point being made. So Romans 8 and verse 9. Um, you, however, he says to the Romans, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And uh, so here the, the, the Apostle Paul uh, uses uh, two descriptions of the Holy Spirit. First, he is the Spirit of God. Second, he is the Spirit of Christ. And Paul is not talking about two different spirits here. He's talking about the same Spirit. In the Old Testament, there are frequent passages to the Spirit of God, or frequent references to the Spirit of God. And here he identifies that the, the, the Spirit of God who the Jewish people had known about in the Old Testament is none other than the spirit of Jesus Christ. He is the spirit of the Messiah, the spirit of Jesus, the anointed one. Um, or look at uh, Galatians 4, 6. Let me read these verses and then we'll come back and make some uh, overall overarching remarks uh, regarding them. Uh, Galatians chapter 4 and verse 6. Paul is talking about here about how the, the Galatians came into the Christian life. And he says this, Galatians 4, 6. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Notice the spirit of his son. So what is, what, what is essential to being a child of God? Namely this that the spirit of the son, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, has come into our hearts. And uh, I'll pick up the word heart there, what it means to be indwelt in the heart uh, later uh, in this morning. And the third verse is Philippians 1, 19. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 19. Um, let me go back and read uh, verse 18. Uh, Paul is talking about here the, his experience of imprisonment, his hope of being rescued from imprisonment. What does it matter? Um, and he's, he's been talking about how um, he, he's been in prison for the sake of preaching the gospel. But there are others um, whom he has trouble quibbles with who are uh, using the preaching of the gospel to to attack Paul in, in a certain way. And he, he doesn't tell us all the details, but he says this in verse 18. What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the spirit of Jesus Christ. Um, and Paul uh, here indicates that some people preach Christ from motives that are not pure. But 
if Christ is preached, Paul is satisfied and um, he trusts that the prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ will lead ultimately to his freedom. But it's the phrase there, the spirit of Jesus Christ. So you see in these three passages, Romans 8, 9, the spirit of Christ, Galatians 4, 6, the spirit of the son, Philippians 1, 19, the spirit of Jesus Christ, the spirit of the anoint Jesus, the anointed one. Um, all of them are, are different ways of saying the same thing, that the Holy Spirit is here identified with the Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit is identified as the spirit of Jesus. The Holy Spirit, in other words, is the one who mediates the presence of Christ to those who are Christians. How do, when, when we experience the spirit, we experience Christ. The spirit has come into our lives to make Christ real and present, to enable us to honor him, to enable us to adore him. Um, as I said, with J. I., uh, the image I used from J.I. Packer, the Holy Spirit's ministry, his distinct role in the new covenant, this distinct role in the New Testament is to cast a floodlight upon Jesus Christ. Or as another scholar, this is a, a New Testament scholar named C.F.D. Moole, um, Charlie Moole, as uh, people who knew him in the uh, Cambridge University uh, would call him. He said this, the experience of the spirit by Christians does not eclipse their experience of Christ. Quite the contrary. In other words, to experience Christ is to experience the spirit and vice versa. And so when people talk about, if they are, if they are fully biblical and they talk about experiencing the spirit, they are inevitably talking about, in the, in the eyes of the Apostle Paul, entering into that deep relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. If our experience of the spirit is not Christ-centered, there's something wrong with it. So a number of, uh, quite a number of years ago, um, uh, uh, the church in uh, around the world was um, challenged in the 1960s by the emergence of what we call the charismatic movement. And um, so much so that the word charismatic for some today conjures up all kinds of ideas uh, and problems in their minds. And they would affirm, they would want to affirm that, well, you know, I'm not a charismatic. Well, we'll talk more about that next week when we deal with the spirit as the charismatic spirit, the spirit who gives gifts to the body of Christ. But one of the things that uh, I remember reading about, and this is before I was a Christian, obviously, I remember reading about uh, was the way in which some certain people uh, argued that the Holy Spirit had led them into a deeper relationship with the Virgin Mary. And these were the charismatic movement was very interesting because unlike the Pentecostal movement, which led people to identify with Pentecostal denominations, the charismatic movement often uh, uh, was part of already various church structures. So you had Southern Baptists who uh, became charismatics in the technical sense of that word in the 60s, uh, didn't leave the Southern Baptist Church and stayed within, or 
Presbyterians who became Charismatics or Anglicans who became Charismatics. Um, and it was very unusual because in um, uh, between the 19, about 1906, when the Pentecostal movement began and the 1960s, you're, usually people who had these experiences became Pentecostals. Well, they didn't in the 1960s. They stayed in the various church bodies in which they found themselves. And the charismatic movement impacted the Roman Catholic Church. And there were some Catholics, Roman Catholics, who said, you know, when we experienced the spirit, you know, I finally understood the importance of the role of Mary. And there's problems with that, deep problems with that. Um, the spirit introduces us to the life of Christ. He is a Christ-centered spirit. He has not come into our lives to exalt the Virgin Mary. Important as Mary is in uh, God's work, uh, she's the mother of, of our Lord Jesus. Uh, she bore him uh, within her. Uh, she raised him. Um, I think Luke, in Luke chapters 1 and 2, presents uh, Mary as a model of discipleship um, in some ways. But she's certainly not what the Roman Catholic Church claims her to be. And the idea that the Holy Spirit coming into our lives would enable us to be Mary-centered is deeply, deeply problematic. And we can rightly raise the question, is what you have experienced the spirit of Jesus, according to the New Testament? Here's uh, another writer, Stephen Neal. He was um, uh, a missionary in uh, India for many years. He says this, um, the, Holy spirit, the New Testament, quote, speaks of the spirit in many different ways, but it never sets him before us as a standard. We are never told to be like the spirit. We are told to be like Christ. I think that's a very profound statement. The spirit is the inspiring power, the impulse, the guide, but he always acts in relation to Christ, something other than himself. Something that is fixed and unchanging amid all the shifting circumstances in which we have to live and the spirit has to work. The unchanging something is Jesus Christ as he was in his incarnation, his death and his resurrection. In other words, um, we're told by the Apostle Paul tells us to imitate Christ, to be like Christ, to be to be a Christian is to be growing in Christ, to be to be Christ like. We're never told to imitate the spirit. The spirit has come into our lives to enable us to follow Christ. So that's the first um, major thing then, that for the Apostle Paul, the spirit is the spirit of Jesus. And if somebody claims to have spiritual experiences and Christ has not been raised in their estimation and we don't see Christ in their lives, we have the right, according to the Apostle Paul, to raise questions. Have they actually experienced the spirit? The second uh, major point, is, is that to be a Christian is to be indwelt by the Spirit. And uh, let me paste my uh, point here into the chat feature. So the indwelling of the Spirit is the fundamental mark of being a Christian. Let me go back again to Romans uh, 8, 9. And... Um, 
Paul makes this point very clearly here in Romans chapter 8. Um, and it's the second part of Romans 8, 9, um, where Paul says this. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So there's two ways of, of phrasing this. Um, one can say from a positive angle that to possess the Holy Spirit, and I, it's not inappropriate to describe uh, the indwelling of the Spirit that way, to be indwelt by the Spirit, to have the Spirit in one's heart, is to be a Christian. Or you could look at it from the opposite angle. If you do not have the Spirit, you're not a believer. It's that simple. Uh, there are uh, two types of people in the world. Um, a Puritan named Walter Craddock once said, a Welsh Puritan, the greatest difference, he said, in all the book of God between saints and sinners is one has the spirit and the other has not. Go to the book of Titus and uh, Titus chapter three. And let, let's see how Paul works this out in Titus three, verses three to six. And you'll see how important uh, so Titus 3, verses 3 to 6. You'll see how important it is for uh, Paul's thinking that to be a Christian is to be indwelt with the Spirit. Titus 3 and verses 3 to 6. Um, the beginning of chapter 3 deals with the master-servant's uh, relationship. And um, Paul then picks up in verse uh, 3. We too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. Now, we could spend a lot of time on this passage. It is, it's really a, a very, very rich passage that looks at salvation, looks at being saved, and that those are fundamental Christian terms. Um, I know they've been made fun of in recent years by certain individuals, but uh, to be a Christian is to be saved. And uh, it looks at this package of salvation from different angles, from the idea of regeneration and renewal and justification. But notice where Paul begins in verse 3. In verse 3, Paul begins by emphasizing that all of us, and he notice he just doesn't say the, the, the Gentiles, uh, they're actually on the island of Crete, um, a large island in the Mediterranean uh, between uh, Greece and, and, and North Africa. Um, he just doesn't say you Cretans or you Gentiles, but you'll notice he says we. He includes himself as a Jew, that he himself was in this state. Um, they were foolish. He has this list of kind of attributes of what it means to be outside of Christ. Uh, we were foolish. 
That is, we were blind to the reality of God. Um, we were, the fool have said in his heart, there is no God. And um, in one sense, and this is a very strong statement, <laughs> we live in a very foolish society. We are surrounded, and I, I don't say this with any um, sense of malice, but we are surrounded by fools. Men and women who live their lives in the horizons of this world as if this world were simply the sum and substance of everything that is. And God only gets brought in as an afterthought. But the person who becomes a Christian realizes that they once were foolish. They were blind to the fact that this is God's world. He's made it. He's created it. We are his creatures. Our very beings show signs of his handiwork in every nook and cranny of who we are as humans. You know, when we go outside and we, we look at the, the skies and the trees and the changing of the seasons and the various animals, all of it is screaming at us just literally screaming at us that there is a designer. And um, the great myth of foolishness in our culture is that the idea of, of, of uh, evolution, macroevolution, and that uh, things came about by, by chance. At a moment, there was nothing, and then suddenly there's a big bang, and there's, there's the potentiality of everything. It's just nonsense. We were once foolish, but not only that, we were disobedient. Paul says here, um, uh, we too were once foolish, disobedient. And that is, we were contemptuous of God's will. It's not simply that we were blind to the reality of God, but what we knew of God. And Paul, Paul says this in, in great detail in Romans chapter 1. <clears throat> There, there are no atheists in the world. Whatever they might say about their philosophical orientation or their ideological orientation, there are no atheists in the world. Everyone in the depth of their being knows that there is a God, but they have rejected him. They are disobedient to God's will. They are contemptuous of God's will. More than that, we were deceived. Uh, in the original Greek, it has the idea of walking along a path that is going to get us to our, our destination properly, but then going off of that path, you know, it's like walking along, a, a, say, the Bruce Trail, which runs near where we live here in Dundas. And I, I don't, don't know if it, yeah, it does. It runs up through Guelph because it goes up eventually to the Bruce Peninsula. And... Um, uh, when I was in my teens, I was part of a, a group. This is the successors of the Boy Scouts uh, called Ranger, uh, Rangers, Rovers. Yeah, whatever it was, <laughs> it was the teenage version of Boy Scouts. And I remember we did the Bruce Trail. We went up to uh, Tobomori and walked the Bruce Trail. We're going to walk the Bruce Trail from Tobomori all the way down to Owen Sound. And... Um, at a certain point at Wyerton, um, uh, there were about half a dozen of us, uh, four or five of us had enough. <laughs> and, uh, we got off the trail, we hitchhiked, 
at Wharton <laughs> and the guy leading us was not happy at all but we, we'd had enough of you know the sleeping out and bivouacking in tents and you know the roughing it and all that whatever and we got off the trail and uh, if we were using that image that that experience of of the, to apply to here we 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 had actually been duped by false guides and the idea we were deceived we we were on the right path and then we meet somebody who says no no this isn't the right path we we need to go this way and we followed them uh, so we were blind to the reality of god we were fools we were disobedient to the will of god and more than that we were we were following dupes and uh, a vast part of our world here in southern Ontario has been duped, just to pick up that image, that, uh, the idea that I was talking about a, a few minutes ago, uh, by the myth of evolution. Um, whatever Charles, Dar Charles Darwin, when he enunciated his theory of evolution, said, you know, I'm not attacking the, the book of Genesis. Um, but that, in essence, is what he was doing. He was saying, here's a, here's a different way of viewing human origins. And it's, it's a deceit. Um, in addition to that, we were enslaved. We were uh, enslaved by various passions and pleasures. Um, this whole area of the freedom of the will is a very important area. It comes up again and again in the history of the church. And the New Testament lays out very, very clearly that, a, that in one sense, human beings, of course, they, they have freedom of their wills, but in another sense, their wills are in bondage to their desires. And men and women outside of Christ are free to do whatever they want. But what they want is really the, the, the pleasures and uh, lusts that are not in accord with God's will. They're, they're slaves to their desires their affections and finally th this is a uh, this is a dr drastic view of humanity outside of christ finally they are men and women who are living in malice and envy they they, they have hatred for other human beings hateful uh, detesting one another um envious of others and filled with hate for their fellow men and really hateful to their fellow men and women. Now, how did we break free from this? Uh, this is, this is, this, this is a, this is a picture of humanity that is hardly optimistic. It's a very pessimistic view of humanity in one sense. And uh, is there any hope for us? Well, You'll notice in verse four, that little word, but. There is a very famous sermon preached by a Welsh preacher named Martin Lloyd-Jones, who probably in many ways was the, the greatest preacher in some ways of the 20th century. Uh, I'm sure if I were to ask you, you know, name the greatest preacher of the 20th century, you'd probably think Billy Graham. But in many ways, it, it was probably Martin Lloyd-Jones in Wales, uh, sorry, in, uh, in London from 1944 to his death in 1981. And um, uh, Lloyd-Jones has a very famous sermon on a similar passage in Ephesians chapter two, 
where Paul describes the human condition. And then he says, but God, having loved us with his with great mercy. And Lloyd-Jones has a sermon on that little phrase, but just one word. And uh, because it is so fundamental to the understanding of the New Testament, it, it speaks of the turning point of, of, of our lives. God did not leave us in this state of folly and deception, self-deception and hatred and being hateful, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But he freed us and he freed us because he loved us. When the kindness of God, our savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. And he extricated us from this situation. We were there was no way out. And uh, he extricated us. How? That's the critical question that is tying into what we want to look at this, this morning. He saved us. Well, he certainly didn't save us by our works of righteousness. I mean, look, look at verse 3. The idea that somehow we could merit the kindness of God, that the love of God is something we deserve. We don't. We were contemptuous of God. We were his enemies. But in the midst of this, God loved us and showed us kindness. And he rescued us. He saved us. How? Notice as he goes on in verse, verse 5, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. How did he save us? He saved us by the Spirit. And so that's why to be a Christian is to be fundamentally indwelt by the Spirit. It's a, the fundamental mark of being a Christian is the indwelling of the Spirit. He saved us by the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Now, some people have argued over the years that uh, this, is, this is a reference to uh, water baptism. And in fact, they, they tend to see every time there is water mentioned, it's got to be water baptism. And um, it's probably, though, a reference all the way back. And uh, we won't look at this, but you can take, uh, if you can make a note of it, you may, may, may want to make a note of this. Uh, it's, it's a reference to a passage in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36, uh, 25 to 27. And there it is in the chat feature. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. Where God promises that he will give the spirit who will cleanse his people from the idols of their hearts and from idolatry. And the cleansing that Paul is thinking about here in uh, Titus is probably tied back to that. It's an inner cleansing. He's using the image of water washing and cleansing us to speak about the inner work that the Spirit does. We are saved by this, this inner cleansing of, of our, our uh, hatred for the things of God, our loathing of one another, our being deceived and uh, duped and disobedient to God, all of that needs cleansing. And um, Paul here in Titus describes this under two, two headings. One is from one angle, it's regeneration. It's the new birth. Um, 
it was said of Billy Graham, who I just mentioned, that wherever Billy, whatever Billy began as a, as a, as a text in his preaching, he always ended up with a new birth. Every, every, every text for Billy was John 3.16, uh, ye must be born again. And uh, whether that's true or not, I remember hearing that being made by um, a man named Grant Wacker, who was a, and is still a, a leading new Billy Graham scholar. And um, I think there's probably some truth to that. But this is the idea here, regeneration. We were saved by the new birth. New birth. You must be born again. Uh, Jesus, if you remember, he brings us home in John 3 and also uh, brings home the work of the spirit there. But uh, the, word, the word Paul uses also here is renewal, um, which has the idea of not only the new birth, regeneration, but also being made new of something being um, <clears throat> renewed in strength uh, and character and so on. But there are probably two different, I think they're just two different ways of looking at the same thing, which is salvation or regeneration or the new birth. Um, or the indwelling of the spirit. You must be born again. You must be born of the spirit. Um, and uh, he goes on to describe how the spirit has been given through our Lord Jesus Christ, and that abundantly. So this passage, I think, is a great passage to see that for Paul, salvation is accomplished by the spirit. If the spirit was not given, would not, has not, were not given, the work of our Lord Jesus Christ in his life and his death and resurrection would be short, short, short ended. It, it, it wouldn't be accomplished. It, it's accomplished. It wouldn't be accomplished in our lives. That's what I'm, I'm trying to emphasize here. The spirit is vital to bringing the salvation that has been accomplished by our Lord Jesus Christ to us personally. Thirdly, uh, the third fundamental idea for Paul about um, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit is an eschatological spirit. And again, let me put this in the <clears throat> chat feature. The Spirit is an eschatological spirit. And um, Paul expresses this in two ideas. And the first, I, the first perverse is Romans 8.23. And uh, maybe you could turn there. And let me explain broadly what this, this idea means. The spirit is an eschatological spirit. The spirit, <clears throat> to experience the spirit in this age, this world, is a foretaste of what is to come. In Jewish thinking... And Paul, remember, was Jewish. Um, in Jewish thinking, in the thinking of the Pharisees, Pharisees or the rabbis, there were two ages. There was this age we were living in. And then at a certain point, Messiah would come. The Messiah would come. And he would introduce us to the age to come, which would be the age of the Messiah. Or it would be the age of the spirit when he would reestablish the kingdom of God in Jerusalem, and he would rule from Jerusalem. Now, we, we don't need to get into that latter element about the, the focus on the land, but th there is this basic idea. 
when the Messiah comes, it'll he'll now it'll now be the age of the Spirit. And um, the Jews were not looking forward to some ethereal existence beyond this world. They were looking forward to a renewal of this world under the rule of the Messiah, when the Holy Spirit would be the very atmosphere in which men and women lived and breathed. Now, what Paul realized on the road after, as he thought through the experience of meeting the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, is that what was future is now here. That we as Christians are living already, in a sense, the life of the world to come. That we as Christians are, in a sense, living the life of the new heavens and the new earth. That in a sense, heaven is here among us already. Because Paul realized that instead of, you know, these kind of two ages, back to back in time, the first age is this, this world. And then this world will end when the Messiah comes. And that'll be the age of the spirit. That in fact, Messiah has come in the person of Jesus Christ. In this world. And he has poured out his spirit in this world. The spirit who is the spirit of the age to come. So in a sense, we're already living in the future. To experience the spirit is to experience the future. Not fully. That's critical. Not fully. There were some Christians who got the idea, oh, this is the, we're already in the new heavens and new earth. You know, there's nothing more to hope for. Well, no, not exactly. There is this tension then that we have experienced the world to come, but not yet fully. And Paul uses two images to express this. The first is Romans 8.23. Uh, the image of first fruits. Uh, Romans 8 and verse 23. Where we read these words. Uh, let me go back to verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Uh, we as Christians have the spirit. Again, remember the second uh, point that we made uh, this morning. To, the spirit is a fundamental mark of, believe, of the believer. But the spirit is a first fruits. Now, first fruits, if you want to read this passage later, is an image of the, from the Old Testament sacrificial system. And uh, you can see it laid out, for instance, in Deuteronomy 26, uh, verses 1 through 11 in the Old Testament, where God lays out the fact that at the time of uh, the beginning of the harvest, when there might be a harvest of grapes, which will produce wine, or a harvest of, of grain, that the people of Israel are to take the an initial part of the harvest and sacrifice it to god they are to take it to the temple and give it to god 
um, which actually was a vehicle for uh, supporting the, the priests of the temple, the, the Levites and so on. These first fruits that are sacrificed to God are a token representative of the whole. They are a recognition that all that we enjoy in this world, all that Israel enjoyed in this world, was from the hand of God. And they were giving a back a portion to God for the support of his, of his, of his temple and those who worked in the temple. So the first fruits are an indication that there is a greatest, greater harvest to come. And that's the image that Paul is using here of the Holy Spirit. In other words, our experience of the Spirit is a foretaste. This is, I'm, I'm now moving into a second image, but it's a, it's a promise of a much greater experience. That just as when I, I'm harvesting, say, grapes or grain, and I take a portion to the temple, that is a, is a promise that there is a much greater harvest yet to be, to be harvested or reaped. So the experience of the Spirit is a taste of the future. It's, it's a promise that there is a greater experience to come. In other words, to experience the Spirit is to experience the glory of heaven. Not fully, but in a sense. In a real sense, it's real. It's very real. In other words, none of us will be in heaven if we don't have heaven in us before we die. Uh, it was said of Richard Sibbs, the great Puritan, uh, heaven was in him before he was in heaven. And uh, that's, a, that's saying the same thing here. That to be a Christian is to experience, in part, the glory of the world to come. There are, should be times in our lives where we are just overwhelmed with the glory of God. And it, 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 it's a promise of a much greater experience. The second image is the experience of, is the image of a down payment. And um, we're going to look at one passage in Ephesians 1, uh, verses 13 to 14. But there are a couple of other passages that you could look at here. So this is the idea of a down payment in Ephesians 1, 13 to 14, and 2 Corinthians 5, verse 5. But turn to Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. Again, we read these words. This is in part of a part of a large uh prayer of thanksgiving that paul makes and it's a tremendous prayer and you may well have heard a series of sermons on this passage it begins in verse 3 of chapter 1 but we'll pick up at verse 13 in christ in him you also were sealed with the promised holy spirit when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and when you believed again the idea notice that we could have looked at this passage uh, as an uh, under the idea of number two the fundamental uh, mark of being a believer is to be indwelt by the Spirit, is to be sealed with the Spirit. But it's the verse 14 that I want to look at here. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. The Spirit is a down payment. 
Now, the Greek word here is a very interesting word, um, and I'll give it to you in the chat feature, at least the tr transliteration. The Greek word down payment here is arabon. It's not originally a Greek word. It's, um, it's a Greek, it's a word that Greeks got from a people called the Phoenicians. Uh, the Phoenicians are very, very important people in biblical history because um, the Phoenicians invent the alphabet that the Jews would eventually take over as their own uh, alphabet. And also the Phoenicians invent the alphabet that the, the, the Greeks took, which and the, New the Old Testament being written in Hebrew and the New Testament being written in Greek, they used the Phoenician alphabet and changed it a little. And this, uh, this word, arabon, was originally a Phoenician word. And it had the idea in Phoenician of something that you paid or gave in promise of a future payment. And um, if you want to see a, a passage in which this is used in the Old Testament, Genesis 38, 17 to 20, it's that difficult chapter about Judah. It's in the Joseph cycle of the story of Joseph. And in the middle of that story of Joseph, you've got this whole chapter on Judah, Joseph's older brother, and particularly the story of Judah and uh, uh, Tamar, um, his daughter-in-law. And if you remember, um, Tamar married his older son, and he was evil and was struck dead by God. Then she married his second, Judah's second son, and he too was evil and struck dead by God. And then Judah decided, okay, <laughs> his daughter-in-law was just not a, not a good choice. He'd already lost two sons. He wasn't going to give, him, uh, give her his third. That This is the idea that if a man dies, uh, if a, a man dies childless, the, the wife has the right to marry a brother so that he, she might have uh, children, uh, that that original husband might have a uh, an inheritance, a future. It's a it's a, a custom of that period, and um, so Judah's determined he's not going to give uh, his third son to her, and she waylays him. She dresses up as a prostitute, and um, he makes a, a pledge to her, and he gives her his ring and staff as a promise that he will fulfill this pledge. And um, she will later reveal this. And interestingly enough, in that passage, the word of him giving his ring and a staff as a pledge, the word that is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is arabon, the same word that is used here in Ephesians. So it's not, it's not the easiest passage to refer to but it has this the idea where he had promised to do something for tamar and she was calling him on it later because he had given her this down payment in the new testament the word has come to mean the idea of of actually money <clears throat> so we're all very familiar with this right when you go to the bank to buy a house you put down a down payment and uh, as you know, the house of prices, the price houses, uh, houses of price, the prices, prices of houses has uh, is, is gone through the roof. I have no idea, you know, what the, the, well, I do. I, 
my son-in-law, my son rather, is trying to buy a house and just the difficulty of getting together a down payment, you know, when your house is half a million or, uh, you know, three quarters. Well, here in, in Dundas, they're three quarters to a, of a million to a million dollars. It's ridiculous in some ways. And how do you come up with a down payment? You know, say, you know, uh, 10% of that or whatever. So the, <clears throat> we're all very familiar with this idea. And the down payment is a promise you're making to the bank. You're going to pay the whole thing down the road with interest. They're going to get their money. And you'll, they'll, they'll, you, you know, you'll have to pay that, that entire amount that they're loaning you to buy the house off. And they're going to get interest to it. So the down payment then is a promise of a much greater down the road. And Paul uses this image <clears throat> of a down payment. The Holy Spirit is a down payment. Now, please do not take this image and uh, depersonalize the spirit. Uh, in our final uh, Saturday together uh, on this little mini series, we're going to look at the Holy Spirit as a person. And what does that mean? So don't take the image and think, okay, that Paul's using the, this image impersonally. He's using this image just to drive home to us that our experience of the Spirit is an experience of a much greater one. God, by the, the presence of the Spirit in our lives, God is promising us that we shall see him face to face. That that greater experience of the Spirit, some of which we experience now, if you as a Christian have no sense of the glory of God, no sense of the glory of Christ, no sense of the joy of the world to come. In a sense, you're from a New Testament point, you, you don't know Christ. There is this sense we've, we already know something of that world to come through the spirit. But that's only a down payment. <clears throat> it's a foretaste of a much greater experience. So that's what I mean by the spirit is an eschatological spirit. We have experienced the future now. We have hope that our experience will be fully realized. But we have joy now. The joy we have now is grounded in the joy that is the very air you breathe in heaven. And then finally, uh, the Holy Spirit, life in the Spirit is the Christian life. And this is the fourth point. And um, I need to move along because uh, we, I'd like to take some time for questions. And um, I've taken the full hour here, but very quickly. Uh, and we may pick some of this up next week. <clears throat> the Christian life is a life in the Spirit. <clears throat> Uh, there are two passages I want to look at uh, here to begin with, uh, and I want to look at it uh, under two or three ideas. The first one is, the first two are Galatians 5, 18 to 23. I'm just going to refer to that, but the second one is 1 Thessalonians 4, 8. You know Galatians 5, 18 to 23, where Paul lists the works of the flesh, and then he lists the work the fruit of the spirit. It's interesting. He talks about works of the flesh, plural, and fruit of the spirit, singular. It's almost as if Paul says, 
Now, the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then he explains in eight different ways, love as joy, love as hope, love as kindness, uh, love as patience, and so on. And what he's describing here is this is what it means to be a Christian. And um, I, I, we live in a particularly, among Christians, divisive period of time. You don't have to spend much time on social media to realize the way Christians sometimes talk about each other is completely out of sync with Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Um, you know, I, I, <clears throat> I, I read somewhere yesterday where somebody said, you know, uh, <clears throat> they were justifying being nasty to other Christians. They, they say, well, Jesus... You know, Jesus went in the temple, overturned the temple, overturned the tables of the money sellers. And they, they actually said, nowhere in the New Testament is, is ever Jesus ever described as kind. You know, to experience Jesus in the flesh was to experience a rough man and so on. And I'm thinking, like, okay, Galatians 5, 22 to 23. Like, <laughs> don't you know that passage? Uh, to be a Christian is to be indwelt by the spirit of Christ who replicates in us the character of Jesus. I mean, Galatians 5, 22 to 23, you could, you could do a series. That's the character of Jesus. He's kind. We, we just got finished Titus 3. God's kind. We, he doesn't deal with us as we deserve. He deals with us kindly. And they like, have these people ever read the New Testament? Like you just wonder. But 1 Thessalonians 4, 8 is the verse that I want to look at. And uh, let me, let me uh, go through this verse a little, a little bit, and then <clears throat> we'll take questions. I, I've not finished. I'm, I'll need to pick this up next week. I, didn't, I, I thought, you know, when you, you lay out what you want to do, and I thought, well, I'm not sure I've got enough here <laughs> to take the hour, but obviously I did. And uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And uh, verse 8, Paul has been urging the Thessalonians here um, to live a holy life. Verse 3, this is God's will, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. And then in verse 8, he says, consequently, Anyone, well, verse 7, God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness. Consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. So Paul is emphasizing <clears throat> God has called us to live holy lives. Not lives like the pagans who are immersed in particularly unholy lives demonstrated in sexual immorality. But he's called us to live holy lives. How do we know this? Because God has given us his Holy Spirit. The God who calls us to live holy lives is the very God who gives you. And the Greek here is very emphatic. The Greek really should be translated something like this. But God who gives you his spirit, his holy one. So Paul's emphasis here is. You, if you reject what I'm saying, you're, you're not rejecting the words of a first century rabbi. You're rejecting God. 
And you're rejecting the, the very God who's given you his spirit, who is first and foremost a Holy Spirit. With the emphasis on the word holy. And um, I, I know that in the, in the past, um, there have been those who've, who have tried to, to, to emphasize that, you know, all too frequently, evangelicals in the 20th century got caught up in legalism. When I became a Christian at Stanley Avenue Baptist Church in Hamilton, uh, I don't think I ever heard anybody say this, but uh, I assume pretty well got the idea, oh, to be a Christian is you don't drink, smoke, dance, go to movies, and you don't date those who do. <laughs> and uh, uh, I had a problem with movies, to be honest. I, why can't Christians go to a movie? I mean, this is the 70s. And uh, I, I, again, as I say, I, I, I'm positive the, the preacher was uh, Bruce Woods. I don't think he ever said anything like that in the run the pulpit, but it you kind of got this idea. The Christian life is a, is a, is a life of rules. And this is what Baptists do. We don't do these things. And, um, and there have been, there's been a reaction to that. We, we, some of this, this is just the life of legalism. We're free in Christ, which we, we, we want to look at next week. Um, but on the other hand, the spirit who's come into our lives is a spirit of holiness. He doesn't come into our lives without his moral character. This is George Verver, Verwer. I don't know if any of you remember him. He was the founder of OM. He's still living. He was born in the, in the 30, 1930s. He's had a tremendous ministry. And he has a book on the Christian life in which he says this, the Holy Spirit does not come into our lives apart from his holiness. He cannot come without his moral character. It is for this reason that we measure a person's experience with the Spirit, although we prefer to say the Spirit's experience with the person, on the basis of his moral quality. To claim that you're a Christian and to live a life that transgresses the holy commands of God is really to say you're not a Christian. You've not experienced the Spirit. To know the Spirit is to be convinced that we are to live holy lives. No longer in a legalistic fashion, but it now emanates. Not, these are not simply rules from without, but they're now part and part of the fabric of our souls. Things that we formerly had no trouble with now become a battle in our lives with the spirit battling against the flesh, which is another whole uh, area that we could develop. Let me stop at this point, and I, I do so for the sake of time. <clears throat> um, there's two other points that I want to pick up here about life in the spirit being uh, life, the Christian life being life in the spirit. Uh, one has to do with doctrine. And the other has to do with the, the, the believer's heart. But we can look at those next week. Let me ask if there's any questions. There's a lot that I've gone through. Uh, each of these points could easily be an hour. And uh, four fundamental points then that for Paul the, relating to the spirit. The spirit is the spirit of Christ. 
He replicates within us the character of Christ. He points us to Christ. He exalts Christ in our, in our midst. Uh, this, the indwelling spirit is the fundamental mark of being a Christian for Paul. That's the second. Um, if you don't have the spirit, you're not a Christian. Uh, thirdly, the spirit is an eschatological spirit. He has introduced us to the world, the, the age of the world to come. This is what Christian joy is all about. Um, but we're not there yet. Hence, Christian hope. And then finally, uh, the Christian life is a life in the spirit. And what I emphasized there at the close was the, the, it's an ethical life. It's a life of holiness. There are certain things Christians do not do. Um, and uh, the fruit of the spirit uh, is, is part of, is central to this life in the spirit. Okay, let me stop here. Um, and ask if there are any questions. I have one question. Um, I kind of thought of it last week as well. Um, so just the relationship of the Holy Spirit, Jesus, and the Father, I'm curious whether there is, like it, it almost seems like there is some sort of a hierarchy where the Spirit um, points to Christ and Christ points to the Father. But I'm just curious because there's also that balance between them so i was wondering if you could talk a bit on that yeah that's uh, it's a very good question um particularly uh, there's a bit of a controversy going on today about the relationship of the son and the spirit to the father and um uh in first of all i think it's essential we'll see this in the final session uh the holy spirit is god fully god he's not part of god um, he is a person within the Godhead. He shares to the full the Father's being. Uh, all three persons are fully God. Uh, there is one will within the Godhead. Whenever the Father acts, the Spirit and the Lord Jesus are acting and vice versa. Um, so there is a sense that we have to recognize that the Spirit is, he shares the being of God to the full. So I the idea of talking about a hierarchy is problematic. But on the other hand, um, the Lord Jesus has come to do the Father's will. Um, the Spirit fulfills what uh, the Father and the Lord Jesus want for our lives. And so there is a sense, a very real sense then, is the spirit doesn't come to speak about himself. He comes to declare the glory of Christ. He comes to make us Christ-like. He comes to exalt Christ. This is the father's will that all men honor the son. Um, so there is a sense then which we can talk about this kind of, we life in the spirit brings us to Christ who takes us to the father. But as long as we don't, Think about a hierarchy of being within the Godhead, that somehow the father is greater than the son and the spirit, or the way that certain people are talking today, that the, the son and the spirit are eternally subordinate to the father. I find that language deeply problematic. And the other thing here, too, obviously, and we'll see this in the final session, is we're finite human beings speaking about the inner, when we're speaking like this, we're speaking about the inner life of God. 
And we need to do, do so with the due recognition of the limitations of human language. Having said that, we must say something, though. The New Testament does. And so we have to use human language to describe that which is ultimately inexplicable. And even, even, even if we were uh, completely redeemed, that is, in the presence of God, we would still be finite creatures with limitations. The distinction between creator and creature is never going to be lost. So even in the world to come, we don't become God. We will, we will know God face to face, but we will not know God as God knows God. Because to know God as God knows God, we'd have to be infinite. Yeah. So the language is, is difficult, but so that's a very, very good point which we'll look at actually in the uh, final session. Yeah, just to, to follow up, I think, um, I think what I was meaning by hierarchy was more like our access to the father. So, um, you know, we don't have that direct relationship with Jesus because he, you know, has ascended into heaven. So the, the spirit is our access to Jesus who is our access to the father. That's kind of how I was. Yes. Thinking. Yes. That's, okay. yeah, that's excellent. Yeah, because, you know, when, when Jesus says, um, you know, whoever's seen me has seen the Father. Mm -hmm. So our experience of seeing Jesus face to face in the world to come, in him, we will see the Father. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which is here, what? Oh. oh, sorry. Yeah. Sorry, just very quick. Here, the Spirit is, has come not to focus on himself, but to bring us to Christ. Mm -hmm. And in coming to Christ, we come to the Father. Yeah. And so the spirit came after Jesus had left the disciples, which makes sense because they didn't need the spirit in order to see Jesus. So, yeah, that kind of all makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. So this ties back to that. Um, the spirit is the spirit of Christ. Uh, to experience the spirit is not to lose Jesus. It's actually to to experience him more powerfully and more intensely. So the spirit does not replace Christ. The spirit makes Christ present to us. Any other questions? Oh, there is one. Oh, someone's asked one on. Yeah. Why do you think the Holy Spirit doesn't get preached much other than afraid of ways he has, has been misused? So uh, I assume that the, why do you think the spirit that we don't speak about the spirit except in ways in which the, the work of the Holy Spirit has been misused? Um, I think in the 20th century, and I, this is not true in earlier generations, but with the rise of Pentecostalism, Pentecostalism introduced into uh, evangelical Christianity um, a real challenge because Pentecostals, classical Pentecostal claimed uh, we'll look at this next week, um, that the speaking in tongues was the evidence of the baptism or the indwelling of the spirit. And a, a number of evangelicals rightly, no, you're wrong. And there was all kinds of division in the 19, around 1906 through to the 1920s when the Pentecostals emerged. Then in the 1960s, you have the charismatic movement which 
argues the Pentecostal message, but people staying within their church organizations. Um, and um, then you have the third wave, which was known as, it's called the third wave, the vineyard in the 1980s and 1990s. And uh, these are all distinct. They all have distinct, different ideas, but they all have a very similar emphasis on the experience of the spirit. And for many evangelicals like us, uh, I think we reacted to some degree with fear. And um, I think the emergence of Pentecostalism, the charismatic movement, and the vineyard pushed us into a reactionary mode. So we didn't talk about the spirit. And if we did talk about the spirit, we emphasize all, oh, this is not what he does. And um, we've, we've, we've lost something. Um, previous generations, uh, Charles Spurgeon, uh, you know, he's one of our favorite Baptist preachers of all time. And Spurgeon would sometimes stop in the middle of his preaching and pray for the Holy Spirit to come in power. I, I know that if that happened in some of our congregations, people, <laughs> yeah, the pastor's gone Pentecostal. Um, and was Spurgeon wasn't Pentecostal. He was just doing, he was just doing what we, we should all do regularly. You know, when you come to gather with the people of God, we should be praying, Holy Spirit be present, exalt Christ in the preaching of the word and our worship, make him real to our eyes, um, glorify his name, save sinners, build up your people. Um, but we've, we've become afraid of the spirit because of Pentecostalism and because there, there is a wing of Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement and the vineyard. I'm going to use an English word, a British word. They're, they're, some of these people are nutters. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> they're just, they're nuts. You know, they're the things that they say about the spirit, like, you know, um, uh, they claim the Holy Spirit is doing. It's, it's just, it's got no foundation in scripture. And uh, uh, I've met some of these, some of these people. They're often delightful people, but <laughs> they're completely bonkers when it comes to the Christian life. And I, their, their, their view of the Christian life is, well, it, it's strange. You know, I, I remember one dear brother, um, he was actually at Stanley Avenue. I, he should have, he eventually, I think, did go and join a charismatic congregation. And it was when I first started teaching Sunday school. And I learned pretty quickly. I'd always start the, the hour with, you know, so how has your week been? You know, and I, <laughs> I stopped doing that because this guy always had bizarre experiences. So I remember the one time he said, oh, it's just been a weird week. You know, I came out of my uh, apartment building and there was the devil hiding behind a bush. I'll never again saying that. And you're kind of, okay, like, yeah, where do we go now? <laughs> and I started to realize he lives in a Christian universe that's quite different from mine. I mean, he had these experiences every week, you know, healings and visions and dreams. And it was weird. And uh, he thought this was the normal Christian life. And I, I didn't deny these uh, possibilities, but uh that's not the normal christian life you know 
vision after vision and all these weird experiences. And because of people like that, we, we've become, we've become scared of the spirit and um, we shouldn't be. <clears throat> yeah. Just a quick question for you, Michael. And if you're going to get into next week, that's fine. Um, I hear a lot of like, this is in terms of point two that Christians are indwelled by the spirit. I hear language often about varying degrees of being filled with the spirit. Um, not, I mean, you get that in the charismatic circles, like you said, with baptism by the spirit and that sort of thing. But even, you know, <clears throat> when I was in university, <clears throat> campus crusade had a tract about, you know, being filled by this, like, are you filled by the spirit, you know, that you can be a Christian without being filled by the spirit or something like that, or that you can have varying degrees of fullness over time. Um, yeah, just wondering your thoughts on that. Yeah, that's a, that's a very important point. I will pick that up next week because that does tie in with the baptism of the spirit. Uh, the very fact that Paul can say in Ephesians 1, which we read, you are all sealed with the spirit, means that to be a Christian is to be indwelt by the spirit. But in the same uh, book, he also says, be filled with the spirit in chapter 5, verse 18. And the, the Greek there is a present imperative. It's something that this is to be ongoing in your life. It implies, therefore, that you can be a Christian and yet not be filled. So how, how does one determine the degrees of fullness? I'm not sure. But it, I think it does indicate that sometimes Christians live out of the resources of the old life. They don't live out of the resources of the new life. They go back to patterns of thinking and behavior that really mark their life before being in Christ. And um, <clears throat> otherwise, it's difficult for me to make sense of why does Paul exhort people who are indwelt by the Spirit to be filled with the Spirit if to be filled with the Spirit is automatic? So, um, again, the same would be, Walk in the spirit. You know, if uh, if um, this was something that happened without our conscious thought, uh, why does Paul exhort us in Galatians 5, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh? So there is that need to pay attention to what does the work of the spirit look like? Uh, Galatians 5, 8, 22 to 23. Um, you know, uh, the, the character of Christ that is depicted there, that the spirit replicates in us. And so when, when somebody says, you know, <clears throat> I don't have to worry. This is the, the example I gave earlier. I don't have to worry when, you know, I'm not really gracious and kind to other Christians. Jesus is never described as kind. And, you know, I'm, I'm just doing what Jesus did when he went into the temple and overthrew the, 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 the table, tables of the moneylenders. But no, 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 no. To be a Christian is to be kind. That doesn't mean we're, we're never strong in our convictions, but it does mean we're motivated by a love for those with whom we, we deal and we, we meet and etc. cetera. Um, and if you're not being kind, you need to take, take stock of, of, of your life and, um, we need to walk in kindness. Uh, I mean, if that, 
<clears throat> if that were an exhortation, I think that were being heeded by by many in the in our Christian world today, we would see less of the divisiveness. Uh, we're 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 living in a. It's very disturbing what we're going through, and um, I, I'm not a pastor. I, I'm a church historian. Um, but I, I think one of the things that we have to do is pray for our pastors. I think it's a very difficult time for those in pastoral ministry. Just the tension and the challenges we've had to face with the pandemic and all this and government regulations. And, um, you know, when I listen to some, I'll be, you know, when I listen to some Christians online and uh, the, the, they, 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 they purport to be coming across as standing firm and bold for Jesus. But all I, all I hear is vitriol mm-hmm. and anger and even hatred for our governing officials. And then when they start to call pastors who are seeking to shepherd the flock, you know, cowards and wimps, I, I've, I've seen this. And, and this is in, uh, this is actually in the, in the area of Southern Ontario, there are some very disturbing things that are being said. And um, this, to me, doesn't speak of the spirit of Christ. There is a time, obviously, for boldness. But a lot of what we're seeing here, to me, violates for Galatians 5, to 23, which is the work of the spirit in us. Do you think that it would be fair in terms of that? that call by Paul to be filled with the spirit that it has to do with our response to the spirit in us rather than like more of the spirit being availed to us. Yeah. Again, I, I think, I think that's, that's exactly uh, the way we need to think about that. It's dangerous. Paul uses images. So down payment, the idea of being filled with the spirit is the idea of a vessel being filled with water. The danger is, oh, he's thinking the spirit is a material entity that somehow, you know, we've got a bit in us. We've got to get more in us. Um, when the spirit comes into our lives, Jesus comes, God comes. Uh, we don't get more physically of God. But I think it is a response to his working, not getting more of him. Um, there was a group in the ancient world called the Manichaeans, um, who, who were, they were a cult, and they argued that bits of God had gotten broken off in various areas of the world, certain human beings, and particularly vegetables, <laughs> melons and cucumbers. And therefore, if you're really spiritual, you're a vegetarian and eat a lot of melons and cucumbers. And I'm thinking, man alive, if only it were, only being spiritual were that simple okay did i have my melon this morning great i'm set for the day in terms of spirituality this is true this is what these people argue and even the great augustine augustine was actually a manichae he was in the cult for about 10 years and um anyway it's just bizarre so that the completely wrong view of somehow god is a material being we got to get more of but I think you're right. It's, it's how we respond to the work of the Spirit. 
Well, let's let's stop at this point. I'm I'm sure you may have other questions. I'm happy to entertain them again next week. Um, next week, uh, we want to look at the, the spirit as a charismatic spirit. Uh, that's the main emphasis, the gifts of the spirit and the unity of the body of Christ, uh, diversity and so on. Um, but we'll also begin where I left off the Christian life as a life in the spirit, because there's a couple of other areas I want to talk about there. And then two weeks from today, we'll come to those questions about who is the Holy Spirit um, and his the spirit as a person and as God. Well, let me, should I close it? I'll, I'll close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you again uh, for who you are, that you are a God of kindness and mercy to us who were once uh, deceived and disobedient and enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, hateful, hating one another. But you had kindness upon us, and you did so through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus and the outpouring of his Holy Spirit. We thank you for the Spirit's work in our lives and pray that we would be increasingly uh, shaped into the image of the Lord Jesus, that we would follow him wholly and completely. Pray for your blessing upon all of us this day. Um, be with us, we pray, by your Spirit, um, and that for your glory, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Michael, thanks everyone. Thank Take you. Bye-bye. Thank you.